Jesus Christ. He is King of Kings. He is Lord of Lords. He is our eternal High Priest who always lives to intercede for us. And he is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This is Well-Placed Faith. And I am Paul Traska today, standing in for your normal host, uh, my good friend, Pastor Matt Burton. Uh, Matt is leading us, uh, has been leading us through a study of Genesis. Uh, last week he did a masterful job of uh, talking about the covenant uh, depicted in Genesis chapters 15 and 16. This morning we're going to take about a half a step backward. And we're going to look at an interesting, um, an interesting meeting in chapter 14 dealing with Melchizedek. Uh, Matt knows that Melchizedek has been a special uh, a person of interest for me uh, throughout my ministry, especially in my ministry to Latter-day Saints. And so he asked if I might spend a week to explore in some more detail this shadowy Old Testament character. I won't give the entire background of chapter 14, but if you'll recall from that chapter, uh, Abraham, and I'm going to call him Abraham even though he's mentioned as Abram in the text because God later changed his name to Abraham. Abraham uh, and his son Lot um, had parted company and Lot fell into captivity. And so when Abraham found out about this, he went to rescue his nephew Lot and his entire household, and he succeeded. He formed uh, a military brigade and went in and retrieved Lot and his family. I'm going to pick up now in Genesis 14, starting at verse 17. After Abram returned from defeating Kedarlaomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley, and then Melchizedek king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed to be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed to be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And so in three short verses, uh, we uh, meet this interesting fellow by the name of Melchizedek. Um, he is a significant person in the Bible, even though Christians end up not spending a lot of time focusing, uh, at least focusing accurately, on his life, his ministry, and his significance in Scripture. And that's what we want to do today. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to look now at all of the Old Testament references to Melchizedek. So get your seatbelt on. We're going to rip through all of them right now. So we're going to fast forward to Psalm 110. Now this is fast, while you turn to that in your Bibles, as I'm going to turn to that in my Bible, we are fast forwarding a thousand years. Um, back in Genesis, <clears throat> uh, we don't know much about this Melchizedek, but we're told two very significant things regarding this person. He is king of Salem, which would later become the city of Jerusalem, and he was priest of God Most High. And so he was a king, and he was a priest. 
And we're going to find out as we continue our study today that that combination of one person is very special in Scripture. Now we're going to fast forward a thousand years. Abraham lived about 2000 B.C. Uh, David, King David, uh, lived about 1000 B.C. So there's roughly a thousand years separating them. And so the second occurrence of the name Melchizedek occurs in Psalm 110, verse 4. Here it is. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And with that, we're done. I guess I kind of led you on a little bit there, didn't I? I kind of gave you the impression that there were volumes of references in the Old Testament to this figure of Melchizedek. Well, there aren't. There are only these two. But before we move on from these two, I've already mentioned the content of Genesis 14, where we actually meet Melchizedek. And by the way, that's the only time that we actually meet Melchizedek in person in the Bible. All other references in the Bible to Melchizedek are by reference. So in Psalm 110.4, we, we find Melchizedek again, and David is making the proclamation uh, that you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Let me give you some background on Psalm 110. I've already mentioned that uh, King David gave, uh, you know, that the Lord actually inspired David to, to write down this psalm. And he wrote it down very shortly after he had established Jerusalem as the national capital for the nation of Israel. So there's an automatic tie-in with Melchizedek because he was king of Salem, which would later be Jerusalem. So it's important to know that Psalm 110 is very important in the biblical record. Uh, first off, Jesus quoted Psalm 110 himself in Matthew 22, verses 43 through 45, Mark chapter 12, verse 26, and Luke chapter 20, verse 42. And then later on, Peter affirmed the early church's messianic understanding of it in the second chapter of Acts, verses 34 and 35. And so Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm. It is a psalm that looked forward to the coming of Israel's Messiah. Now, we've already said that Melchizedek uh, is only mentioned in these two, these two uh, verses, uh, first in Genesis 14, here in Psalm 110.4. Those are the only mentions of Melchizedek in the Bible. The rest of the information that we get about Melchizedek is found in the New Testament. Melchizedek is mentioned ten times in the entire Bible, two in the Old Testament and eight in the New Testament. And in the New Testament, Melchizedek is only mentioned actually in one New Testament book. And that is the epistle to the Hebrews. And we're going to spend some time there later on this morning, looking at what the author of Hebrews has to say about this Melchizedek. But before we jump into the New Testament, um, there is actually one more Old Testament scripture that we need to take a look of. Now, this, this is a secret scripture. It's a stealth scripture. But I'm going to tell you about it as long as you promise to not tell anybody else, all right? 
It's in Zacharias 6. Let me give you a little background for Zechariah. Zechariah was a prophet of Israel after the nation had returned from their 70-year Babylonian captivity. Uh, the nation had been bad, and God had punished them by taking the whole nation away and destroying their temple um, and laying waste the land and taking the whole nation into uh, Babylon for punishment. After 70 years, he allowed uh, the Jews who were alive at that time to return to the land of Israel. Now, we say they returned, but in all honesty, um, very few, if any, of the actual human beings who left Israel returned. It was 70 years later. And so actually, it was really the children and the grandchildren of those who were carried away captive who actually came back to the land of Israel. And once they, re, once they were back in the land of Israel, they had a major job in front of them. Other people had moved in. Wild animals had somewhat taken over. Vegetation was growing wild. Uh, many of their buildings had been demolished, and the temple lay in ruins. The Lord had instructed these returning exiles to build that temple. Well, and they were having a tough, a tough go of it, and they were discouraged thinking that it was just a monumental task. And so Zechariah was a prophet during this return period. And the Lord gave this prophet eight night visions of encouragement for the nation of Israel and for those exiles who were trying to follow God, trying to be obedient to him, trying to rebuild this temple. And after he had finished uh, relating to the nation these eight night visions of encouragement, we find a most interesting symbolic act that God instructed uh, Zechariah to perform. So we're in the sixth chapter of Zechariah, and we're going to start reading um, at verse 9. The word of the Lord came to me, Take silver and gold from the exiles Haldai, uh, Tobiah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, Go the same day to the house of Josiah, son of Zephaniah. Take the silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak. Tell him, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch, and he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty and, and will set and rule on his throne, and he will be a priest on his throne, and there will be harmony between the two. The crown will be given to Haldai, uh, Tobiah, Jediah, and Han, son of Zephaniah, as a memorial in the temple of the Lord. Those who are far away will come and help build the temple of the Lord, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. This will happen if you diligently obey the Lord your God. This was a powerful prophetic act of, of uh, uh, profound significance for the nation of Israel, such that when this prophetic act was completed, they took the crown that had been used during this ceremony and they placed it in the temple as a memorial. What was this prophecy? This is a messianic prophecy, looking forward to the day and the coming of Israel's great Messiah. And what do we find here? We find that this great priest shall also be a king. He will sit on his uh, throne and rule, 
and he will also be a, th a priest on his throne. And the Lord says there will then be harmony between the two. Between the two what? Between the priesthood and the kingship of this individual. But why should that be so earth-shaking? I mean, what's the big deal with that? The big deal is that this never happened in Israel. Let me tell you why. Is Jacob, who later was renamed Israel, had 12 sons. One of those sons was, the, was named Judah. And all of Israel's kings and kingship flowed through that tribe. Another one of his boys had the name of Levi. And priesthood uh, came within the lineage of Levi through the more narrow lineage even of Aaron and his sons. And so in Israel, uh, kingship came through Judah priesthood came through Levi. They were on parallel tracks with each other. There is no way in Israel that a priest could be a king or that a king could be a priest. They came from different tribes. And if we look at the colorful history of Israel, we know that there was often a lot of bitter contention between the priests of Israel and their rulers, those who exercised kingly authority. But that was to no longer be true when Israel's promised Messiah would come. Here, finally, would be one person in whom would reside kingly authority and priestly authority and a single person, and that there, there would now be harmony between priesthood and kingship. This was a huge message for Israel to hear. And so they took that crown because it was such a profound message, and they took it to the temple and left it there as a memorial to what just had transpired. And so once again, in the Old Testament, we actually have another, another passage here which talks about Melchizedek but doesn't use his name. The significance of Melchizedek is that he was a priest and a king. Israel's Messiah was to have that same combination. And so we see that it's the principle of kingship and priesthood that is significant and not the name or the title Melchizedek per se. Hold on to that because that's very critically important. We now are finally going to begin moving into the New Testament. And like I said earlier, the final remaining eight references to Melchizedek are found exclusively in the book of Hebrews. So let's talk for a minute about the book of Hebrews <clears throat> and see what was going on there. First off, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. That's rather frustrating for us, and so people have put forth a number of speculations, uh, well-meaning, of course. Uh, the principal contenders for authorship are the Apostle Paul, uh, Apollos, the Alexandrian Jew who came up into the Roman Empire and moved around and taught, and then Barnabas, the great son of encouragement who befriended Paul uh, when he first came to Jerusalem and then later fetched Paul when the Gentile work was beginning to really take off in Syrian Antioch. So those three people are held up as the author of the book of Hebrews, but in actuality, we really don't know who wrote it. The book does not contain any direct evidence of its authorship. Since the Reformation, it's become traditional that Paul the Apostle wrote Hebrews, but in modern Bibles, uh, the author is not named. Now, I, I, I'm not the least bit dogmatic on this, but I kind of favor Apollos. If, if those are the only three contenders, 
I would probably favor Apollos, but once again, uh, that's just a feeling that I have, uh, certainly nothing to become dogmatic over, and it really doesn't matter. But what we do know about the book of Hebrews is that it was written by a Jew, because uh, the author had a very intimate knowledge of Jewish scriptures, of Jewish, Jewish customs, and the Jewish people. And he was well in touch with the problem that he's talking about in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews was then also written to Hebrews, Jews, who were struggling and being persecuted for their faith in Christ. Most likely, these are Jews that were living in Jerusalem who were suffering persecution for having believed Jesus as their Messiah. So Hebrews is a book written by a Jew to Jews to encourage them to remain faithful uh, to Jesus as their Messiah. The book of Hebrews is often referred to as the book of better things. Why? Because the word better and the word superior occur in the book no less than 15 times. And so uh, the book of Hebrews can be challenging. Uh, it's, it's a challenging book because there are several uh, well-reasoned um, arguments that the author presents in his book, but they can be a little bit challenging to follow. Um, but we must remember, so when we approach the book of Hebrews, we've, we must keep in mind the author's intent. All the way through the book of Hebrews, the author is doing one of two things. Again, he's trying to encourage his Jewish uh, brothers who believe in Christ. He's trying to encourage them to remain faithful to Christ. And he, he does this two ways. The first way he does it is by demonstrating that Jesus is far better far superior than anything that they had come to know as holy or precious within Judaism. Take whatever, take whatever that you've come to acknowledge as holy in Judaism, Jesus is better. That's his first um, argument, and that's a, pre a predominant argument all the way through the book. The second thing he's trying to do is to demonstrate uh, that they can't slide comfortably back into Old Covenant Judaism. There's nothing to go back to. The Old Covenant system, with its temple, its law, its priesthood, has been made obsolete and has been annulled by Jesus, who, is, who has instituted a better covenant, a new covenant in his blood. So those two things, when the, when the author of Hebrews is engaged in an argument and you get tangled up there and it's a little bit hard to follow, it's helpful to remember that he's, he's building a case or building an argument for one of those two things. Either that Jesus is better than anything you've come to know in Judaism, and so why settle for something inferior? And then number two, you can't slide comfortably back into Old Covenant Judaism. There's nothing to go back to. It's been made obsolete. And so everything the author does supports one of those two lines of reasoning. Uh, we don't have time this morning to look in detail uh, at every instance of Melchizedek in the book of Hebrews. And so we're going to uh, be selective and focus on the very most important passages uh, which the author, uh, in, in an inspired act of genius, uh, he, he looks back. Uh, the author of Hebrews looks back at the Old Testament, the very passages that we've been looking at. He looks at principally Genesis 14, where Abram met Melchizedek, and then he looks at Psalm 110, a thousand years later, where King David said that their coming Messiah would have a Melchizedek type of priesthood. And I probably ought to stop right there, because in Psalm 110, 
um, there is an interesting turn of phrase here where David says that the Messiah would be a priest in the order, in the order of Melchizedek. That can be just a little misleading. Uh, a better translation would be, would have the same type, manner, or likeness of the priesthood of Melchizedek. Because when we, in English, when we see the word order, you know, we think something like the order of the Knights of Columbus. You know, we, we think of an organization. You know, we, we think of there being a body or, or an, an official uh, group of uh, Melchizedek priests. Uh, but such was never the case. It was never the case in Israel, and it was most certainly never the case within the Christian church. So I wanted to just kind of point that out as we move through here, that the order of Melchizedek does not indicate a formal instituted order of multiple uh, priests who shared the same type of um, priesthood as Melchizedek. And so <clears throat> the first thing we want to focus on is our author in chapter 6, near the tail end of chapter 6. He makes an interesting observation which, is imp which was important to his original hearers and it consequently is important to us. I'm going to start reading in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, starting at verse 16. All of this is, a all of this is his reflection back on Psalm 110.4. Men swear by so someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the air. Uh, to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever, in the order of Melchizedek. Reflecting, this is a great transition uh, passage in the New Testament for us to look at because the last occurrence of Melchizedek in the Old Testament is Psalm 110.4. This is a wonderful bridge because our author here is reflecting back on Psalm 110.4. In fact, when I teach this, I tell people that if you took Psalm, if you took Psalm 110.4 out of the Bible, heaven forbid. But if you were to do that, I believe that the entire book of Hebrews would, would cease to exist. So much of what the author has to say uh, revolves around this text in Psalm 110.4. We see the first instance of it here. And he says that God did that, that God inspired King David to author this psalm about Israel's coming Messiah, to give them that promise and that hope that, that their Messiah would come and that he would be a king and priest and that he would have the same type of priesthood as Melchizedek. The author of Hebrews says that God did this as a great source of encouragement to those in the first century who were suffering. And so today we should find the same encouragement that in Jesus, the author of Hebrews is proclaiming that Jesus is that promised Messiah, this one who would have the same type of priesthood, being king and priest, is that held by the original Melchizedek back in chapter 14 of Genesis. Hallelujah. We now move into 
chapter 7 of Hebrews. And in chapter 7 of Hebrews, we find most of the author's logic and reasoning regarding the superiority of Jesus. And so I'm going to actually read for you this morning a substantial part of this chapter. I'm going to start at verse 1, and then I'm going to move down and probably just read through 22, and then we'll go back and make some observations about what we've just read. Starting at chapter 7, verse 1. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires descendants of Levi, who become priests, to collect a tenth from the people, that is, their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. This man, Melchizedek, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, and yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by men who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the law was given to the people, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. He of whom these things are said belong to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it's clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God, and it was not without an oath. Others became priests without an oath, but he... Uh, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Praise God. Okay, there's a lot going on there, and we're going to take some time unpacking what this author has marvelously unfolded for our benefit. His overarching principle here is to demonstrate that Jesus, holding the same type of priesthood as Abraham, was superior to all that, all that the Jews had come to know and revere as holy. He was greater than the temple. He was greater than the priesthood. 
Uh, he was greater than the law, and he was greater even than the great father Abraham. I should slow down for a minute and, and talk just a little bit about Abraham. In Jewish theology, Abraham is the great Poobah. Uh, he is the first cause of their history and of their nation. He's the bomb. They see Abraham as uh, the great patriarch of their entire nation. And in their theology, he is one very small notch down from deity. So Abraham is sacred. You don't touch Abraham. He is a sacred individual. For this author, that, that was, you know, so that was not only true uh, in the first century, it's also true today. Uh, my wife, Leslie, taught at a Jewish day school in uh, Beverly Hills, actually, for 13 years. And uh, Abraham is still every bit as much revered today as the chief patriarch of their nation <clears throat> as he was in the first century. And so for this author, the author of the epistle to the Hebrews, to come along now and to say that, that Jesus is even far superior to Abraham was a huge huge statement to be making. It changed everything. Some were confronted by it. Some couldn't accept it. But it's nonetheless true. And that's the proclamation that he's making. So let's begin making our way down through uh, chapter um, 7 now. And see exactly what the author is doing with all of these comparisons. Um, down in verse 3, uh, he makes an astounding statement which many have uh, taken out of context and confused. L let me make an editorial comment before I move on. The book of Hebrews is a series of systematic uh, arguments that are well-reasoned and are interconnected. It may be challenging oftentimes to figure out what the author is actually saying. I agree with that. But it's also very dangerous, it's a very dangerous book to proof text, to just pluck a sentence or a phrase out of its context, uh, not understanding what it serves, how it functions within that context, and use it for whatever purpose we're choosing to use it for. Uh, the book of Hebrews needs to be kept in context. And so, having said that, I want to immediately go down and read for you verse 3. Melchizedek was without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life. Like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now, um, plucking that verse out of context is going to lead us into all kinds of mischief. So first, let me explain exactly what the author was doing here by making that statement. He was comparing and contrasting the priesthood of Jesus and Melchizedek with that of the Aaronic priesthood. In Israel, all it took to be a priest under the law was to be a genetic descendant of Aaron without physical defect. That's all it took. You didn't have to be a good person. You didn't have to be a noble person. Uh, you didn't have to be a handsome person. It, all you had to do was bring in your birth certificate and your family tree, demonstrate that you were a child of Aaron, that you were a son of Aaron, and they would say, okay, fine, sit down right here, we'll, we'll ordain you. It was a matter of law. And so very detailed records were kept regarding the lineage of, of Aaron. The, the law required it because it required only sons of Aaron's, Aaron to be priests. You can check that out. 
beginning in Exodus chapter 28, verse 1, if you want to go back and see where that originated. And so um, the Aaronic priesthood within Israel was marked by genealogy. You had to prove who your parents were. Uh, your posterity would have to prove that they were your sons and your sons. Uh, it was all based on lineage. And so the beginning of your ministry was marked uh, with great ceremony. Your death was made note of. Everything had to be recorded. Interestingly enough, uh, when the Romans destroyed the Jewish temple in AD 70, all of those genealogical records went up in the flames, which, which was yet another indication that that old order of things uh, had come to an abrupt, ugly, fiery end. And so what the author is doing here is he's comparing this regulated, legal, you know, succession of Aaronic priests who, who die and then children, you know, sons take over. And then this had been going on, this had been going on for 1,400 years where they had kept these strict genealogical records going back 1,400 years. He's comparing that to the record of Melchizedek, the record of Melchizedek in Genesis 14. In Genesis 14, we have three verses only which talk about Melchizedek. He enters stage right, he exits stage left, he barely breaks stride, we barely, we barely get a good glimpse of him before he's gone. And so in the text, there is no record of his parents, no record of his posterity, no record of the day of his ordination, no record of the day of his death, none of that. None of what was required in Israel to be a priest is true of Melchizedek. In the text, and this is the important thing, in the text, he remains a priest the entire time. Unlike the series of, of continuously dying priests uh, which ruled in Israel for 1,400 years. This is the comparison. This is the comparison and the contrast that the author of Hebrews is making. So when he says, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. He's dealing with that contrast and comparison between Melchizedek and the Aaronic priesthood of Israel, demonstrating that the Melchizedek priesthood is better and didn't rely on all that genealogical stuff. <clears throat> now, people have plucked this one verse um, out of context, and they have uh, come up with a myriad of wild-eyed myths, legends, and schemes. Um, and they have attributed to Melchizedek some kind of divinity. Um, you'll, you will note that back in Genesis 14, uh, he brought out bread and wine to, to serve to Abraham and his troops. Because he served bread and wine, some people have come up with the idea that Melchizedek was actually a pre-incarnate uh, Jesus, that Jesus was giving a pre-incarnate appearance uh, in the person of Melchizedek. I have sat in many Sunday school classes, and every time I teach about this, that comes up. So it's a very popularly held speculation. Now I'm going to argue that that speculation is wrong, uh, and if you just think about it for just more than a moment, you can see, you can understand the illogic of suggesting that this was a pre-incarnate um, appearance of Jesus. First off, if he were an apparition or a spirit, 
Um, he very well couldn't have been king of a city-state, could he? Spirits, apparitions, are not kings of city-states. And yet we're clearly told that he was king of Jerusalem, a city-state in that day and time. So that theory doesn't make any sense. And, and if Melchizedek was a real person, which in fact he was, how could that be a pre-incarnate visit of Jesus? If he was already in the flesh as a real live human being, which you would have to be to be king of a city-state, well then Jesus was already incarnate in the form of Melchizedek. So that argument doesn't hold any weight either. Anyway, uh, but you get the idea that this little, this little snippet out of the seventh chapter of Hebrews has led people into all kinds of wild-eyed speculations. I'm looking at a book right now entitled The Melchizedek Tradition, a critical examination of the sources to the 5th century A.D. and in the epistle to the Hebrews. It's written by Fred L. Horton, Jr., who is Associate Professor of Religion at Wake Forest University, and it was published by the Cambridge University Press in 1976. This is a phenomenal scholarly study. Uh, Fred Horton um, traces all of the legends and myths and traditions and movements, yes, movements, which center around an inappropriate understanding of the person of Melchizedek. Uh, many extraneous um, movements have been formed, and, they, and most of them hover around this one sentence that we just got through reading, because people plucked that one sentence out of context and chose to, to in, involve themselves in wild-eyed fantasies. It has led to uh, endless mischief. So stay away from that. <laughs> Well, there, I got that off my chest. Now, so what else, then, um, is the author doing here? Well, the author is doing a number of things. Um, I have written down here on a piece of paper five ways that our author is saying that Jesus, because he holds the same type of priesthood as Melchizedek, Jesus is better. Number one, Melchizedek was actually greater than Abraham. Why? Because Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And indeed, as it says in verse 7, without doubt the lesser person is blessed by the greater. Well, that, that stands to reason. There's a good point of logic there, that Melchizedek is a greater person, and therefore the Melchizedek priesthood held by Christ is therefore also superior to all that happened within Abraham and Israel's history. Number two, <clears throat> we just read about without father or mother, beginning of days, and the, all that kind of stuff. Um, Melchizedek held his priesthood without all of the trappings, the burden, the requirements of genealogy. There's no ancestry, no posterity, no regulations. Instead, he in the in the text, and that's the important thing in the text. He remains a priest forever, by comparison. Jesus is the priest who also lives forever, unshackled by all of those ancestral uh, you know, family trees and, and legal regulations. So that's another way that Jesus is better, because he holds, because he lives forever, and he holds Melchizedek's priesthood. Number three, 
For 1,400 years, um, the nation of Israel had experienced any number, a huge number, a vast army of Levitical priests. Why? Because they keep dying. Lifespan was maybe 40 years, maybe 50 years. Do the math. You know, do the family tree. That There were an untold number of Levitical priests who could, who could never remain in office because they kept dying. Melchizedek, that's not the case with Melchizedek. Consequently, it's not the case with Jesus. I'm going to read now in chapter 7, starting at verse 15. And what we have said is even more clear. If another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. Jesus had been raised from the dead. He lives forever. He's not going to die. You don't have to replace him. His his priesthood doesn't transfer. It doesn't hand down. He's got it forever. He doesn't have to hand it off to anybody. He's alive forever. There's no need to pass it along because all of, all of the old covenant era was merely a 1,400-year-long picture arrow pointing to what Jesus would, would do on the cross one day beside a road outside of Jerusalem. The work that he did was to be an eternal work. And so that 1,400-year-long history of Israel was nothing more than a picture arrow, picture drama, depicting what Jesus would accomplish in his person. And we are the happy beneficiaries today of what he accomplished. Number four, tithing. Here's an interesting, here's an interesting um, aspect of logic. Uh, we all know that under the old covenant, the old law, it was actually the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, choked down within the more narrow lineage of Aaron, who actually collected tithes uh, from the rest of the nation. Uh, the other tribes had their own land inheritance where they could produce where they could produce goods. The tribe of Levi didn't have a land of inheritance. Their inheritance was the Lord Himself and their work at the temple. They dedicated themselves exclusively to the, the work of the temple. And so the other tribes had to support, through tithing, had to support um, the tribe of Levi in their ministrations at the temple. Interestingly enough, the author of Hebrews says, check this out, Abraham actually paid tithes to Melchizedek, again indicating that he's superior to Abraham. Abraham paid him tithes. And in his final um, interesting observation of logic, he was saying, you know, that the, the tribe of Levi, who collects tithes from all the other tribes of Israel, Levi was vicariously, actually, paying tithes to Melchizedek through the person of Abraham. Because when Abraham met Melchizedek, Levi was still in his body. His posterity had not, not yet been fully manifested. Interesting turn of logic, isn't it? And then number five... We have the covenant. Um, in verse 22, uh, the author of Hebrews, uh, citing again citing Psalm 110.4, he says, Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now I'm going to rip over now. I'm going to rip over now. Um, 
into chapter 8 and flesh out the new covenant and why the new covenant is better. And I'm going to start in chapter 8 down around verse 6. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one and is founded on better promises. For, there, for, if there had been nothing, for if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God did find fault with the people and said, and this comes out of Jeremiah 31, 31. This is the passage which Jesus himself invokes at the Last Supper when he lifts the cup and says, this is the new covenant in my blood. That was his short way, shorthand way of invoking the new covenant of Jeremiah 31, 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It won't be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. The author of Hebrews is linking the new covenant to the priesthood. And he's linking the priesthood of Jesus with the new covenant, which is better by far. Um, for if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. That's verse 7. Going back into uh, chapter 7 now, starting at 11. If perfection, if perfection could have been attained through the, through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the law was given to the, the people, why was there still need for another priesthood to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when there was a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law or a change of the covenant. Well, boom, there you have it. The old priesthood, the old temple, uh, the old law was superseded and improved upon by Jesus. And according to Jeremiah 31, uh, it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers. In other words, the new covenant is going to be different. It's going to be different than the old covenant. It's going to replace it, and it's going to be better. So the author of Hebrew, Hebrews is using all of these aspects of Genesis 14 and of Psalm 110.4 to work through this wonderful logic in his book to, to tell us the importance of the type of priesthood that Melchizedek possessed. Summing it all up, the Old Testament introduces Melchizedek and tells us that Israel's promised Messiah would possess the same type of priesthood by the solemn declaration and oath of God. What made the priesthood of Melchizedek unique were the attributes of both king and priest being held by the same person, which would not be the case throughout most of Israel's history. The book of Hebrews explains that Jesus is this promised priest after the order or in the type of Melchizedek and explains just how far superior this priesthood is above Abraham, the Levitical priesthood, and the Mosaic law. Jesus has become a priest forever, which makes his work perpetually effective, unlike the work of Levitical priests who always die. 
We've not had time during the brief time we've had this morning to plumb the entire depths of this study of Melchizedek. Um, I have a, an entire chapter in my book, Partway to Utah, The Forgotten Mormons, uh, which will uh, unfold in even more detail, uh, with more documentation, the, um, the person of Melchizedek and his significance in Scripture. You can get that book on my website. Uh, it's Refiner Fire Ministries, and the web address is uh, www.helpforrlds.com. That's www.help, the numeral four, and then rlds.com. If you're so inclined, you can also buy it on Amazon. I'm not, I'm not here to sell books today, but I know that this has probably piqued the curiosity of some of you who would like to pursue this further. So I wanted to provide an opportunity for you to look at that further. Now, there would be no discussion of Melchizedek priesthood here in America in the 21st century um, unless I were to pursue where the Melchizedek priesthood actually res resides. I have suggested to you earlier that there was never, there was never in Judaism, there was never in all of the history of Christianity an order or a, an organization of Melchizedek priests. That's true. But there is one movement, actually two movements, in which there is a Melchizedek priesthood, Mormonism and Freemasonry. And so I would be remiss this morning if I didn't make some concluding comments about this aberration of the Bible and this aberration of Christian theology. With the sole exception of Genesis 14, where Melchizedek is first introduced, virtually every mention of a Melchizedek priesthood in the Bible is in reference to the specific, unique, and exclusive ministry which Jesus Christ alone fulfills as God's chosen means of salvation for his people. Nowhere is there any suggestion that there ever was or should be an order of, of Melchizedek priests in the Christian church. And since the Bible always refers to the unique and specific and exclusive role of Jesus Christ alone, any attempt by mere humans to appropriate this title or function which belonged to Jesus alone constitutes an act of blasphemy. Men take it upon themselves to take upon them the title and function and the role of Melchizedek, which belongs to Jesus alone. That's blasphemy. Enter Joseph Smith. Enter Mormonism. Enter Freemasonry. Every man who passes through the 19th degree of Freemasonry, um, hands are laid on his head, and Psalm 110.4 is pronounced over him, Be thou a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Joseph Smith, um, all books of scripture authored by Joseph Smith um, abuse the actual person of Melchizedek and make it into something that it's not. I'm just going to read you um, one verse out of Joseph Smith's so-called inspired version of the Bible. For this Melchizedek was ordained a priest after the order of the Son of God, which order, which order was without father or mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. And all those who were ordained under this priesthood 
are made like the Son of God, abiding a priest continuously. We're running short on time, and I don't have time to walk through the other scriptures that Joseph Smith uh, introduced, uh, whereby he laid the platform um, for a Melchizedek priesthood in his church. Suffice it to say that it's a complete fabrication, it's an abuse of scripture, and it engages good, otherwise well-meaning men in acts of blasphemy. This needs to be repented of. This is sin. It may well be ignorant sin, but it's still sin, and it needs to be repented of. I hope that you have found this analysis of um, Melchizedek in the Bible interesting today. Um, I trust, hope, and pray that you'll uh, have your curiosity uh, piqued so that you'll pursue it further and be open to additional understanding regarding Melchizedek. Um, but I want to conclude with some observations regarding Christianity. Um, Yes, this is interesting information, but it's more than interesting information. It draws us closer to the Son of God, um, and it draws us closer to an understanding of our Lord and Savior. Um, I'm afraid for some people, though, the Bible, church, religion, theology, uh, become an intellectual or a philosophical hobby something that their friends and neighbors or family do by going to church. Jesus, in Matthew 22, when asked what the greatest commandment was, he said that you should love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. Please notice here that the mind came last. And in fact, you could build a good case that unless and until you worship God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, you're really not equipped yet to love God with your mind. And so I would ask you to slow down for just a minute today and see if that could be possibly true of you. I've heard it said that some people are only 12 inches away from becoming a Christian. They fail to let the knowledge which resides in their head drop 12 inches down into their heart and so be converted. My friend, don't let that be said of you. Examine your heart, examine your life, find somewhere quiet today and, uh, and make sure that you're loving your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. God would give you a clean heart. He'll clean you up, begin your life afresh and anew, and uh, take you on the ride of your life. Um, make this a Christmas to remember.